This is the weekend edition of The Code Report. And welcome to The Core Report or Weekend Edition. My guest for today is Ravi Venkatesan, Chairman of the Global Energy Alliance of People and Planet, launched at COP26 with a US $10 billion of committed capital. Ravi used to be Chairman of Microsoft India, Bank of Baroda, and more significantly for this conversation of Cummins India, the company where he served in Pune as well as other parts of the world. Ravi is an alum of IIT Bombay and Harvard Business School, and he wrote a very interesting book or, or around which I've had the opportunity to have a conversation with him as well called What the Heck Do I Do With My Life? How to Flourish in Our Turbulent Times and Conquering the Chaos. So the questions that I'm going to post to him today is to do with manufacturing. I think there are two or three backgrounders to this, which I thought I'll showcase first or put down on the table and then go on to the question. So the first is that India clearly needs more manufacturing jobs, given the targets and the ambitions that we have in terms of overall GDP growth. So contribution of manufacturing to GDP is about 17%. It's really not grown, while let's say services has grown from 45 to 55% in the last few years. If India needs to reach, let's say, a 20 trillion GDP target of by 2047, then manufacturing must grow up quite sharply to at least 25%, if not more. So that's on one end. On the other hand, what we've seen over the last couple of decades is clearly that people who graduated, let's say, in engineering have chosen to go into IT services because that's obviously been more lucrative and perhaps is more frictionless in a manner of speaking. I remember an interesting insight from someone from one of the metal and mining companies in India, one of the large ones. And he told me that they had gone to recruit to the Indian School of Mines in Dhanbad. And these are the you know people who are perhaps some of the best engineers when it comes to mining, extraction, minerals, and so on. And he said that they just couldn't pick up anyone because they'd all gone and joined Infosys. So that gives you a sense of how things have evolved. There have been people like LNT chairman A.M. Naik who publicly bemoaned the fact that a lot of engineers were going into IT. So cut to the present, IT services has begun seeing a slowdown. Now, this slowdown is obviously because of what's happening in Western world. Clients are cutting back, but there could be other reasons as well, which are more long term. We are definitely seeing IT companies in India cutting back, not recruiting at the same intensity they did earlier. This may again get shifted around a little bit here and there in coming years, but it looks like there may be some secular changes. So given all that, or given all this, what does this mean for India, for young people who want to embark on a career? How should they be choosing things? What should they be looking at? So to now come back to our guest again, I thought these are some of the questions I could ask and pose to Ravi Venkatesan, because I don't know any people or very few people who could perhaps approach this with the thought and the width of experience and understanding that he can. So Ravi, thank you so much for joining me. And let me ask you firstly, as someone who spent time on the shop floor and also run a large IT product company, not just a services company, where do you think we are today in this journey before I now then get down to the specifics? Yeah. Hey, Govind, it's fantastic to be back in conversation. Ironically, it was exactly 20 years ago that we first met and you interviewed me on a shop floor in Pune at Kamath. I think you're exactly right. Things are changing briskly. And I think IT as services is going through a big transformation. But some of it is just temporary, a slowdown in demand. But I think you know that will correct itself over time. Some of it is driven a lot by automation, seeing AI in particular making significant inroads in many organizations. And right now it's driving up productivity. So you don't need to hire as many developers as you did. And I wouldn't say that, you know, there's a crisis or anything of that sort. 
But generally speaking, I think it's quite reasonable to say that the sector will not be hiring quite as many people as it has done traditionally. I think those days of what is called linear growth, where the headcount increases with revenues in exact proportion is probably largely behind us. And so we need to find new sources of growth. And what better than manufacturing? India's performance in manufacturing has been underwhelming, to say the least. But with all this geopolitical rearrangement, many, many firms looking at a China plus one strategy, our own desire for us to reduce imports and do more in India, I think there's a giant opportunity in front of us in uh, manufacturing growth. But that's not going to be easy. And perhaps that's what we should explore in this conversation. Right. So let me pick an illustration which goes back to your past. Cummins used to make diesel generators, gensets, and so on, big engines. Now, could we be, let's say, competitive in an area like that today? And if so, then could that be a starting point to really understand where can we be competitive in manufacturing or what kinds of manufacturing? It's very ironic. So back in 2003, exactly 20 years ago, just before I left Cummins, we could actually land a 2,000-horsepower engine in China with a cost advantage relative to our Chinese sister plant, Cummins China plant, making the same engine. That's how competitive we were. Since then, of course, Cummins is exporting gobs and gobs of engines, generator sets, components to all over the world. And it's not a unique story. So if you see in cars, whether it's Hyundai or Suzuki or they're all exporting a substantial chunk of their production. If you see JCB, a company whose board I was on till 2020, nearly 40% of everything they make is exported. And again, to the most advanced markets, not just to developing countries. So we did a report back in the day with McKinsey, and we looked at high-skilled manufacturing. These are all high-skilled manufacturing. I wouldn't say high-tech, but they require uh, significant levels of skill. India was very competitive then. I think there probably has been some erosion of competitiveness, but I still think we're very, very much in the game when it comes to high skill. Then when it comes to low skill stuff, I think we're in woeful shape, whether it's textiles, toys, shoes, those kinds of labor intensive things, which frankly is what we need much more of. Because the big challenge, which we haven't yet got into, is the crisis of unemployment in our country. And so we need, you know, lots of these kinds of labor-intensive, relatively low-skilled industries, which are able to soak up people and you know, keep aspirations reasonably in line. So, yeah, I think we've got a lot going for us still, Govind. I am a big believer. Now, there's certainly lots we can do to become more competitive, but are we in the game on high-skilled, high-tech stuff? Absolutely. So what's changed? I mean, why have we seen this relative erosion in competitiveness in the last decade or so? I don't know. I'm just speculating here. But what happened with China's entry into WTO is it was like a giant vacuum cleaner being turned on over there. And it sucked up a lot of manufacturing from all over the world, from Europe, from the United States, but also from India. I remember, you know, in the days when I was in manufacturing, kinds of things we'd make. And it just became much more lucrative, much more profitable to import these from China. And so people began to say, look, why mess with all this when it's just cheaper to import? And so I think a lot of that has happened. Then there's been benign neglect, I think, because IT was booming and then other services began booming. There's been a 
benign neglect of manufacturing. Nobody, particularly states, have not systematically focused on attracting manufacturing, reducing friction, improving competitiveness, etc. But all these are fixable, Govind. Where there's a will, there's a way. So that's the demand side. Let's talk about now on the supply side. You know, engineers, skilled people who could be, let's say, going into that workforce, both in two ways. I think, of course, I'm not saying that entrepreneurs are born the moment they go out of college. They could be too. But on, in both sides, whether it's entrepreneurship or skilled people who feed this potential or hopeful manufacturing demand, how do you see that playing out as we are today? And what do we need to do to perhaps realign people and their thinking and perhaps their ambitions. There's one thing I've learned over the years. Wherever there's opportunity, people will count and they will learn the skills necessary to, you know, cash in on that opportunity and advance. So why did we have this enormous success in IT? Because you had extraordinarily successful firms 20, 25 years ago, particularly after Y2K. And so they created lots of jobs. Many of those jobs were quite lucrative. And so you began to see youngsters begin to learn programming. Every parent wanted their kid to learn something about software development and get a job in Infosys. So I would say what is needed is to get the demand side going first. I hope supply tends to take care of itself when there's demand. Okay. And that was our experience at Microsoft as well. So we used to run these giant partnerships with the likes of AppTech and IIT, so that millions, it actually wasn't even in lakhs or anything, it was really literally millions of engineers would learn, you know, C++, .NET, all those kinds of things. So I'm not worried about the supply side. We have overabundance of people. We have an overabundance of engineers. Not all of them are directly employable. But what did the Indian IT industry show? You can actually do a massive amount of internal skilling, training, etc., and make them ready, fit for purpose within six months. So I think the main challenge here is to get the manufacturing happening in the country. The supply of talent will follow. So that to me is the really interesting thing. At India's scale, how do you get manufacturing going? Okay. And I have used this metaphor of locomotives to which you can attach lots of little wagons. See, if I were, whatever, chief minister of a state or head of government or whatever, the single most important thing I'd get the whole government to do is make a list of companies I want here and give targets and go get those companies here. Okay? If you get, you know, Cummins setting up out here, that investment, their supply chain, etc., is going to come with them. That's going to create the ecosystem. That'll create the jobs, etc. It's very, very hard to start from little, little isolated companies, manufacturing companies. Everything in manufacturing is a supply chain. And if it's a chain, then you need the locomotive that pulls the whole chain along. So I would pick sector by sector. Who are the top two companies? How do we get them here? And then do whatever it takes to get them to set up shop. About five years ago, I met one of the five vice mayors of Chongqing, China. It was a closed-door session, and he gave a talk. He said, look, my job as a mayor is very different from what you think. I don't run the city. My number one KPI is to attract companies to set up business here in Chongqing. He says, my day begins at 6 a.m., and it goes on till 11 p.m. 
I have two breakfasts. Often I'll have three dinners because I go meet company A, company B, company C, and I understand what's it going to take. And my job is to deliver whatever it takes to get them to make a favorable decision. I think if you are able to do that, then everything can follow. And this is the window of opportunity to do that. So, for instance, right now I'm on the board of Hitachi in Japan, and we're all looking keenly at India. If you're able to get, if I'm a state, and I'm able to get a Hitachi train and locomotive plant set up here, man, you're done. The whole chain is going to come with you. The whole ecosystem is going to come with you. Okay, And then you can worry about where the skills are going to come from, etc. So, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, but I think the problem perhaps is the gap between the need and what is available. So for example, and let me again split that into two parts. So one is, let's say, we're seeing interest in iPhone manufacture. Foxconn, for various reasons, including geopolitical, and I want to touch on that with you as well, is moving you know, a lot of manufacturing into India. There are some issues with obviously how much value add and so on, but let's put that aside. The second is that there are the government itself is offering a huge amount of incentives for, let's say, semiconductor manufacture. And yet the biggest and the best are not yet coming here, despite India saying that we're going to give you 50% of the total capital investment. So it's not an easy pull. I mean, even if you do all the selling and you do all the dinners, people are not going to come because there's China still there and there may be other reasons. So how do you navigate this? Because you used Hitachi as a good example, because if you had said Hitachi compressors, then maybe it was an easier ask in a matter of speaking, but you're saying Hitachi trains or locomotives, which is a much tougher one. Look, I do think it is very challenging to persuade a global company to set up significant shop out here. You didn't reference my first book, which I wrote a decade ago. It was called Conquering the Chaos and was aimed exactly at global companies and their CEOs around what, why is India important and what, what does it take? And India, you know, my friend Dr. Ashok Ganguly, who used to run Unilever, I see before that, then Unilever. But he's used a beautiful phrase, which I quote in the book. He said, India is a country of mouth-watering opportunities and eye-watering challenges. <laughs> so, so the global companies, they do get that things are changing in India and there's great opportunity over time. But it is still formidably difficult. Okay. And they know that. And for instance, the hardest thing is all this policy instability. You talk about incentives. Yeah. They're here today. We are not sure they're there next year. There was this instability around laptops. Can you import laptops or is that going to be taken away? They've changed the quality standards for toys and furniture. So if you're a global company, you never know when something is going to change that makes your investment worthless. Look at e-commerce policy and look at the woes of Walmart and Amazon. So India is terrifyingly difficult. And I think what you need to do if you're going to recruit these firms is A, sit down, not make these general schemes, but sit down with Hitachi in this case and say, what's it going to take to get you to invest out here and make sure you deliver those things and provide some credible assurances and a lot of handholding. And it's like sales. It's like selling anything. You have to give targets, quotas like the vice mayor or Chongqing and do what it takes to attract them. And then it'll slowly come. And these things are like flywheels. You get the first four or five big companies going, they say positive things. There'll be a stampede after that. So I think this is all just the first four or five years where you land a few of the big giants. 
and things will happen. And in your own sense, when you see, I mean, obviously there is manufacturing investment coming in. Foxconn, even if it's iPhones, is in that direction. We should celebrate a lot of these wins because the, each win is important. But it's a trickle. It's an absolute trickle compared to the flood that's going to Vietnam, for instance, or even Thailand. And it's only when Vietnam is saturated that they're going to come and probably take us seriously. So I don't think we should so easily satisfy ourselves that we've got some one Foxconn, one Micron assembly test facility. Yeah, good. I would aim much higher. And also one of the interesting data points is to look at net flows. So you look at how many new companies came in, set up shop, and you look at how many exited India. I've got the data and it says they're about equal. So one enters, one leaves on average. So we still have a lot of work to do. And why is that happening? I mean, so for example, let's say a General Motors or a Ford leaves, but that's because maybe there's a global restructuring happening. Are you talking about that kind of examples or others? Yeah, both kinds of examples, but they're less celebrated names, smaller companies, which is quietly leaving, nobody notices. But if you actually look at the numbers, which my friend Ajay Nanavati shared with me, there may be six coming, five leaving, so net incremental as one. And why are they leaving? Because they don't see a path to being really successful here. You know, it's as simple as that. Right. And I'm going to come to entrepreneurship in the moment and how that could be a potential solution for all of this. The other aspect is geopolitics. We are also in an interesting point. I mean, Mexico now is exporting more than China to the United States. And all of this is happening because in 2016, America started raising tariffs, made China a clear sort of enemy of sorts, at least in, when it comes to importing. And plus, there are many other shifts that are happening and will happen. So in this world, how do we become more attractive and for what? So first of all, by just virtue of all these big realignments, we are attractive. Now, all we have to do is stop repelling those who want to come here. Okay, I really use these words very carefully. We should stop repelling companies. Okay, And repelling is you know, the usual frictions of establishing a firm, land acquisition, but the worst killer is instability of policies. The tax terrorism that Prime Minister Modi or candidate Modi back in 2014 talked about, I understand is a little bit better, but it's far from where it needs to be. So we just need to reduce systematically all these frictions. I think most of them actually in the, at the level of the state compared to center. So I think the state can do a lot more to attract investment. I'm just going to Tamil Nadu in January to give a talk at their big investor meet. If we do that, I think people are going to come here in large numbers. Okay, just But China is still ferociously competitive. So no matter what the realignment, it is still an extraordinarily competitive place to manufacture things because of the ecosystem. They have a phenomenal ecosystem for everything. And they are incredibly, incredibly fast. You take a prototype by tonight, you, or you take a design by tonight, you'll have a prototype. In India, it's just nowhere close to that level of capability and supply ecosystem capability. That takes time to build. It'll take five, 10 years, but it'll, it'll come. Look, the important thing to realize is you have to be intensely focused, intensely focused. And if you do that and land some of these big fish in the first three, four years, it just becomes self-sustaining. And, you know, again, on the talking about the issue of talent, look, I don't worry about talent. That's actually the least of my worries because we have very large numbers. 
Okay. And sure, a lot of it won't be usable. What, but if there's one thing we learn from the IT experiences, go hire for attitude and go fix the skills. Now, if you're saying, look, oh, I want ready-made talent. I'm just going to go to the market. Then you're going to be in a you know, difficult situation. But if you're willing to go to colleges, hire people who are hungry, willing to learn, then I think it's very, very fixable. And that's both shop floor workers as well as you know, knowledge workers. But you have to do what Infosys did 25 years ago. Okay. I think the examples that we've touched upon so far is maybe to do with large enterprises, foreign direct investment, bringing in capitals, technology, and also setting up large, let's say, on-ground plants or factories here. That's one kind, which is important. Let's go into the world that you are in, which is to work with entrepreneurs on a more ground-up way. How does that fit into what we're talking about right now? Good. So you need to do both things. What, I took, what we've just talked about is what I call exogenous interventions, getting these locomotives that can pull lots of small businesses as part of the supply chain, lots of jobs, etc. That's one critical thing. The other thing we need to do is spur endogenous entrepreneurship leading to job creation. And that's what I do through my organization called Game. What we're trying to do is, look, can you replicate a Bangalore in every district? And this is actually Chandra of Tata's phrase. He says, I was trying to explain, what do we do in Game? He says, oh, I get it. You're trying to replicate Bangalore in every district of the country, 750, 800 districts. And that's exactly right. So what is it that's special about Bangalore or Mumbai or Gurgaon? They have an ecosystem where the conditions are generally favorable for people to start things. Okay, And what makes it favorable is, number one, successes. Nothing inspires more entrepreneurs like a really, really successful one. So if you think Bangalore, 1.0, it was people like Narayan Murthy and Nandan and Azim. Then you had 2.0 with the you know, Flipkart boys, the Sachin, Binni, Bhavesh, etc. Then you have 3.0 with people like Nitin Kamat, whatever. But it is the success of these people, extraordinary success of local people, that inspires more and more people to get going on entrepreneurship. So what we have to do is, in every district, look at some successes or try and showcase them and inspire others. The second thing you've got to do is figure out in this district, what is their competitive advantage? What could they be doing? Okay, and pick two or three sectors, if you will. And it could be around food processing. It could be around, you know, light manufacturing, whatever it is. And try and in, get, accelerate more small businesses. And we've got a way to do this, which we call growth rate. So that's the second piece. Third thing is you work with the district administration, et cetera, to say in these sectors, how do we reduce the frictions, create more tailwinds and reduce the headwinds? Then we run the largest entrepreneurship program in the world. So we are now in 10 states. So this morning, 4 million kids across India woke up and their first compulsory subject at 9 a.m. was entrepreneurship. So you get them all thinking about entrepreneurship as a viable career choice. You get them hooked on it. You get them a taste of it. So it's not just learning it in the class. They actually have to launch businesses during the summer holidays. You get them hooked on it. And so that also creates a pipeline of opportunity. So by all these interventions in one place, you hope to get something self-sustaining, a chain reaction happening. And so we've just launched in Maharashtra, in your state, in six districts, including Thane, Aurangabad, Jalna, whatever. So interesting proof of concept now after five years. 
whether we know how to systematically intervene in a small town and get this whole entrepreneurship thing going. If we can do that, I think we have something quite extraordinary that can happen. What are the kind of ventures that have, let's say, risen up at least to be noticed by you and or you found interesting in the context that we've been talking about so far? Well, if you think about India, right, two-thirds are still living on or just adjacent to farms. So the biggest opportunity has to do with agriculture, the way we grow food, the way we process food. So agro-based industries are mega opportunity. And that's one category. What we are finding is very, very interesting. So we work with a partner called Selco, which is out of Bangalore. Selco stands for Solar Electric something company. And they have developed Govin. Solar lanterns. They started out with lanterns, but now they've developed 175 different businesses which run on distributed solar. So for instance, a roti making machine, okay? A milking machine and a chiller, milk chiller, or different types of grain and you know oil seed grinding machines, etc. So what we're doing now with them is go to a town, run a mela, demo all these one, uh, you know, not all 175, but let's say 25 different types of businesses with these, and mobilize people to come forward and say, look, I want to start this business. And if they come forward, you give them training, you give them a loan, you show them how to market it. So this is amazing, amazing. This is like franchising in a different way. Can you franchise 175 different business models? Here's the interesting thing. Two-thirds of the entrepreneurs are women. Okay? So we right now in our Maharashtra Entrepreneurship Mission, which I talked about, six districts, we've got a target of 500 new entrepreneurs around these business models. Light manufacturing has a lot of potential in many places. So, for instance, Ludhiana or a Kolhapur or Coimbatore area, which have a tradition of manufacturing. I think that by just raising that ambition of what they can do, this enormous, enormous headroom. So, look, every place has its opportunity. We haven't even begun to look at craft manufacturing. Okay. So, there's a lot. There's a lot out there. <laughs> So most of what you're dealing with, at least in the context of game, is physical products? All, almost all of it. Some are services business, but I would say a vast amount of it is physical products of some sort. And aspirationally, the people you meet in this context want to grow like that or do they want to become, you know, start a fintech company, for example? Look, yeah, look, fintech and all is maybe in seven, ten cities. Okay. But in much of India, people are just lost. They're just lost. They don't know what to do. Their biggest ambition is probably by and large a government job, but there are no government jobs. So for every one job, there's one like applicants. And they're clueless about what to do. And there's a lot of despair coming in. So if you come in there and you demonstrate the opportunities, okay, you don't talk about it. You expose them to these different types of businesses they can do. They self-select. Somebody is interested in this. Somebody is interested. Some are interested still at just staying at home and getting a handout. But I don't think that's the majority. So our work is still early, but I would say by and large, there's a lot of interest in going down these pathways. But on their own, they're not able to think of it. So you have to be able to demo it. Right. And you know, uh, you've brought in the problem of jobs in what you've said. I mean, in the fact that people are lining up for government jobs, for security, among other things. 
the fact that there are far many, too many people for X number of jobs, whether it's in public or private sector. And we've also touched upon the fact that private sector itself currently does not have too much capacity, particularly as skill levels increase. And the nature of jobs also changes. I mean, the nature of manufacturing and production and services changes. So in a very broad sense, Ravi, so what do you feel are some of the solutions to the problem that we face as India at scale? I came into this asking you about manufacturing because to me, that's one clear area that we need to address and obviously delving into your own experience. But how else are you looking at it or would you look at it? Look, first of all, you've got to realize what we're up against. So our demographics say that, you know, we need to be creating somewhere between 12 and 18 million jobs a year. Net jobs, not gross jobs. So because the net also means productivity drives some job losses. We haven't been close to anywhere close to that forever. The second thing that's happening is automation of different sorts, whether it's AI, robotics, machinery. And so generally, we are on the cusp of a very, very steep productivity curve, which means you need fewer people. And we haven't even begun to think about the impact of AI. Okay. And, you know, Rishi Sunak just hosted a bunch of AI gurus in England. And Elon Musk was there and you know, Sam Altman was, all these guys were there. Elon particularly said, nope, you know, another decade or so, we don't need people to work, okay? If they want to work, that's fine, but we don't need them to work. The reason why people work is not primarily money. You can think about some sort of universal basic income like your Narega. You can think about a universal basic income scheme for even everybody. But that's not the primary reason why we go to work. We do it because work gives us so much more than an income. It gives us meaning, purpose, community, opportunities to learn, accomplish. So for mental well-being, you need to do things. So what does this mean? That's why I think one of the biggest pathways is for people to become self-employed or better yet, start a business that employs a few people and so forth. The other thing that's happening, which I write in my second book, What the Heck Do I Do With My Life, is there is no longer any such thing as a stable job, okay? Because even in a good company like a Microsoft or Google, you can have a layoff, you can get reorganized, your manager, you could get a new manager who doesn't like you, whatever it is, there are too many variables. So in the recent interview with Bloomberg, I said, look, the riskiest thing is not entrepreneurship. The riskiest thing is having a job, okay? <laughs> so... So the faster you get on with learning to become independent, self-employed, as you and I have, or better yet, starting a small business that grows over time to a medium business, the better off we'll be. And if we can get many more hundreds of thousands and then millions going down this path, I think it all adds up. It adds up. Obviously, the recommendations for government would be very different. But here I'm talking more as what does it mean for individuals? Yeah. Yeah, you did say that supply orients itself to demand. And if demand shifts, then all these young engineers who come out of colleges or humanities graduates will adjust. Are you confident of that? I mean, do you feel this generation has what it takes? And this is a question that every generation one must ask. Yeah, we begin to show our age if we start doubting uh, new generations. Look, every generation has different attitudes towards life, work, etc. You can see those differences. But at the end of the day, look, you're not solving for 1.4 billion people, okay? You're either solving for your enterprise or you're solving for yourself, okay? Even at the scale of a Microsoft or whatever, 
can you find so many thousand willing people every year? Yeah. You may have to cast a wider net to find the thousand that you want. You may have to do way more filtering and you may have to do way more remedial learning. But India has an infinite supply of talent. Okay. And so the most important thing that I've learned over the years is hire for talent and train for the skills. Don't go hiring skills, boss. That's a completely wrong strategy. Ravi, are you working on any new book or a sequel to the earlier one? Yeah, actually, I'm thinking about it now. One of my friends, very interesting guy from my classmate at Harvard Business School, Jonathan West, at this age, he just finished his uh, PhD in ancient Greek literature. So he learned classical Greek and went back to read Plato, Aristotle, etc., the original. And he just got his PhD. So I said, Jonathan, why don't we write a book about what these ancient Greek philosophers might advise if they were here today in these current times? How do you stay sane in a world where the planet is collapsing, all these kind of wars, divisions, and whatnot? And he said, great idea. And we were beginning to think about that. And then he died. So suddenly I just lost him. But the idea still remains, which is how do you stay sane in a world that is as dystopian as ours is? And we've seen nothing yet. Okay, It's going to get wildly more dystopian in every part of the world. So yeah, what do we do? What do we do as individuals and communities? That's the kind of book I'm thinking is actually relevant. I don't have answers. I have questions. And these are very, very important questions, Ravi. You must ask them. And maybe I could have a conversation with you on this, even as you work on the book itself in uh, coming days or weeks. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was great fun. Thanks. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the Thank you for listening.